My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And it is great to see every single last one of you. Uh, it's great to see my friend Matt Bristol back there. Yeah. Matt, we're so glad to see you, buddy. Matt's one of our pastors here at Redemption Hill, and for the last handful of weeks, Matt has been traveling the world uh, working with indigenous church plants and church planters in, in places that are trying to reach unreached peoples, uh, whole groups of people that have never uh, heard the name of Jesus, where there is no gospel witness. Matt has been traveling around the world, uh, meeting with church planters and, and groups trying to reach these peoples, uh, praying about how Redemption Hill could connect with them and encourage them in their efforts and maybe be a part of their efforts. So it's so good to see you. I haven't had a chance to see you since you've been back. I can't wait to give you a big hug uh, and hear about how the trip has been, as well as the team from Japan. Uh, but if you guys uh, wouldn't mind, if you've got your Bibles, let's open them up to the book of First John. This is where we have been for a while. I think we will probably wrap it up next week. Uh, have no fear. We will get to the end of First John. Uh, I think we'll finish it next week. Um, but while you're turning there, let me remind you, uh, John, the writer of this letter, uh, was one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, he was arguably Jesus' closest friend, maybe even Jesus' best friend. Uh, he was not only the author of this letter, but he was the author of the two letters that follow in your Bible, 2 John and 3 John. He was the author of the book of Revelation, and he was also the author of the Gospel of John, which was really his effort at, at writing a biography of the life and ministry of Jesus, his testimony, his witness of the life of Jesus here on this earth and the ministry of Jesus here on this earth. And you don't have to turn there, but in John's biography of Jesus, after he told the story of Jesus and what God did through Jesus and what it means to know Jesus, he ended his biography this way, John chapter 20, verse 30. This is how he ends it. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, and here's why he wrote what he wrote in his gospel, in his biography of Jesus. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote his biography of Jesus, or what we call the Gospel of John, so that people would believe in Jesus, so they would place their faith and their hope for restoration with God, redemption from this life, and hope in eternal life in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ. He wrote his gospel so that people would see God's glory in the face of his son, Jesus. And in seeing that, the Holy Spirit would renew their hearts, give them new life, that they might be born again, and they might experience life that is to be found in Jesus. He wrote his gospel that people might see Jesus and come to believe in Jesus and come to know Jesus, to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's why he wrote what he wrote. But back in 1 John, where we've been, John wrote a letter years later after he had written his biography of Jesus. As an older man, he writes a letter to the church, a church comprised of people who had placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus People who had heard that good news about Jesus, had heard about who Jesus was, had heard about what Jesus did, had placed their faith in him, had repented of their sins, had confessed their sins and received that forgiveness from God. John pins this letter to a church very much like ours. And in chapter 5, verse 13, he tells us why he's written what he's written. And we've looked at this for the past couple of weeks, but let's look at it again. Chapter 5, chapter five verse 13, John says that I write these things to you. Here's why he has now written this letter to the church. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, to the Christians, to the church, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wrote his biography of Jesus so that you would come to put your faith in Jesus. And he wrote his letter to the church, those who had placed their faith in the person and work of Christ, those who had heard the good news of the gospel and believed. He wrote this letter that you might have confidence, that you might have assurance that the hope that is within you, that comes from faith in Christ, would be deeply rooted. John wanted the followers of Christ to have assurance in their faith, to have confidence. He wanted them to experience the transformation of faith in Christ in life here and now. And throughout this letter, John has unpacked what this confidence looks like, what this assurance looks like, what fruit looks like in the life of a believer on three main things we've talked about over and over and over again, a love for Jesus, a sincere love for Jesus, and a sincere belief in the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done, 
a sincere hatred of sin, a sincere growing hatred for the sin within you and the sin we're still tempted by and the sin we still battle, a sincere and deepening sacrificial love for brothers and sisters in Christ and a sincere desire to continue to grow in holiness into conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. Love for Jesus, love for the brothers, a desire for growth and maturity and holiness. This is what it looks like when assurance is taking hold. When confidence is strong and growing, the marks of a follower of Christ, John says to the church, that you can be confident and, and have assurance that you do indeed know Christ. You, you have indeed been transformed by Christ and are being conformed into the likeness of his image. Here's how you can know. Do you believe he is who he said he is? Do you love Jesus? Do you love the church? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love them in such a way that it reflects the type of sacrificial love with which you've been loved by Christ? Do you have a sincere desire to continue to grow into conformity of Christ? Out of delight for the grace of God that's been shown to you through Jesus, do you have a desire then to be obedient to God's word? If so, you can have confidence, John has said over and over and over again, that you do indeed know Christ. You are indeed a Christian. And from here in chapter 5, verse 13, we saw last week that this confidence, this assurance, this desiring and this treasuring of the eternal life that is ours to come, but that is a quality of life that we live in and experience right now, spills over into a particular confidence, a particular assurance that shapes our relationship with God, and more particularly, a confidence and assurance that impacts the way that we talk to God, the way that we pray. Look at verse 14. John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, talking about God the Father and his son Jesus, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If you remember what we said last week when we worked our way through this text, we said that John was not writing an exhaustive text or an exhaustive treatment about prayer. There are things about prayer that are true about prayer, that are wonderful about prayer, that are just privileges that we have when we commune with God, when we talk with God, when we relate to God, that John isn't talking about here. I mean, there's no reference to thanksgiving to God for who he is. There's no reference to, to, well, we just won't get into all those different things. It's not an exhaustive treatment about prayer. John was trying to lift our eyes up out of the confidence that is ours to see the confidence that we have to come before God, to talk to him freely, and to know that he listens, that he desires to listen, and to not only know that he listens, but that he actually answers. He wanted us to see how the confidence that is ours because of Christ impacts the way that we actually relate to God, the way that we talk with him. And our relationship with him is to be marked by confidence. But like we said last week, if you remember, it's not a presumptuous confidence. It's not presumption. Our confidence that God not only listens but answers is never higher, we said last week, than when we are praying, like John said, according to God's will. John then took this confidence that we're to have in our relationship with God and he applied it to a particular situation so we could see how it worked itself out. Look back at verse 16 and 17. John says, sometimes you'll be relating to a brother or sister in Christ who's in sin and he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. But there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So in this text that we looked at ever so briefly last week, John talks about two main aspects of our life of prayer with God, really petition and intercession. Just two aspects of our communication with God. There's so much more, so much more to our prayer with God. And, and if you are a guest with us or if you've only been coming to Redemption Hill for a short while, I encourage you to go onto our site where we have all of the, the sermon series from the past that are, that are saved on the site. You can go back and listen to them. We actually did an exhaustive treatment of the Lord's Prayer about two years ago. And so if you want to have a more extensive and exhaustive look at, at prayer as Jesus taught us to pray in its fullness, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But that's not what John's after here. 
John's after confidence in prayer because of the grace of God that has come to us with, through Christ. And then he looks at one particular instance, how we pray for one another, how we petition God for things and how we intercede for one another. And like we said last week, this is just the way Jesus taught us to pray. It's the way Jesus modeled for his disciples to pray. And a petition, asking God for things. If you remember last week, we looked back at how Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, in one of the most human, painful, honest reflections of the life of Christ and his relationship with God the Father that we have in the Scriptures, we find Jesus praying to God the Father. It's saying, if there's any other way, if, if you are willing, Father, remove this cup from me. Remove this from me. If there's any other way for you to accomplish your will, apart from me having to go through this, if you're willing, remove it from me, but yet not my will, your will be done. Jesus taught us to petition God. Give us this day our daily bread. He taught us in the Lord's Prayer, but he modeled it in so many ways for his disciples, and, and they all, all the Gospels record Jesus praying like this. But Jesus not only taught us to petition God for things, he taught us to intercede for others. He taught us to pray for one another, to pray for other people. If you remember, right, right before he goes to the cross, he has this great conversation with Simon Peter. Luke chapter 22 records it, and he says this, and you'll remember this. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. How would you like that? And Jesus looks at you and says, Satan has asked for you. Do you imagine what Peter's response was? Like what his face looked like? I want to see that one day. But he said, but I've prayed for you, Simon. Jesus prayed for Simon Peter. Can you imagine that? Jesus prayed for him. He said, but I've prayed for you, Simon Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus taught us to pray for one another. Jesus prayed for his brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the greatest prayers that Jesus prayed for us is in John chapter 17. His great high priestly prayer where he prays to the Father and he prays for his disciples and he prays for the church. And this is what John is dealing with, petition and intercession. And last week I had wanted to take time to clarify a few more things from this text, but we really just ran out of time. Uh, as we shared the evidences of grace that, that we brought up last week and the lives of people here at Redemption Hill, I took a little while to do that and we ultimately we ran out of time. And there were a couple of things that I wanted to clarify about this text. And then there were a couple of practicalities I actually wanted us to see and to experience together uh, that come from this text. But we ran out of time. And so this morning, here's what I'm going to do. I want to clarify one or two things from the text we looked at last week. We just walked through. And then I want us to be really practical together in the time that we've got left, if that's okay. Clarity and practicality. I don't know if those are two words you use to describe my preaching, but this morning... We are going to aim for clarity and practicality. And so the first area of clarity that I actually want to deal with uh, has to do with what it means to pray according to God's will. Some of you sent some great emails last week asking that we take some more time to just explain that a little bit more. There were a couple of questions that I got yet last week after the service and then throughout the week that were kind of along the same lines, just like, okay, I think I've, I've got it, but could you broaden that a, a little bit more? And so that's where we're going to start this morning. John said that our, our confidence that God not only hears us, but also answers us in prayer is never higher than when we pray according to God's will. But what is that? And how do you actually know what that is? I mean, what seemed to be coming back to me was this constant refrain of, I know I'm supposed to be praying according to God's will. And, and I really believe that my desire in my heart is to pray according to God's will but I'm not sure what that is. And then in circumstances and situations in my life, if God has a particular will for me and what I'm supposed to do, then why won't he just tell me exactly what it is? Have you ever felt that? You ever been in a situation or had to make a decision and your desire is to do what you feel like is in accordance with God's will and you just wish he would just say it? Just what exactly is your will in this decision? Well, this morning I, I wanna try to get some clarity regarding what it is we're actually asking when we say that. So let's start there. And I'll start this way, I'll tell you a story. Um, it's been a, a big year in our family. Our son's finishing up first grade this week. This week, right, Jude? First grade, done this week? Yeah, first, week, first, first grade, done this week. 
And in first grade, we took big milestones. He's actually reading real books. And he, he loves to read these Nate the Great detective books. It's a whole series of books about this young boy detective, and he goes and solves these, these mysteries, kind of like a, a little kid Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and it's really cool to hear him tell the story. And uh, it's made me remember that back when I was his age, or maybe a, a little bit older, um, I used to read these choose-your-own-adventure books. Have any of you ever seen those? Am I, am I dating myself on these? I don't know if they still exist. Choose-your-own-adventure books. You, you'd be reading the story, and you'd get to this place where all of a sudden the main character, who was you, was maybe in a foreign country, and you're being chased by an enemy. And at the bottom of the page, it says, to flee the country by night, turn to page 26. To rush into the nearest tunnel, turn to page 37. And you have to choose what you were going to do. And you turn to page 37 and rush into the nearest tunnel only to find that there was a bear in there. And you got eaten alive. You chose the wrong decision. So you go back and you start reading again, and next time you choose the next one. And throughout the book, there were all these different choices you had to make that led you to different endings and different conclusions in the book. They were awesome. Did anybody else read those? Am I alone? Okay, thank you. I have to go to eBay and buy some for Jude. They, they, they were awesome. They were fantastic books. And here's the first point of clarity I want you to have and, and why I tell you that story. Discerning the will of God is not like reading a choose-your-own-adventure book. Discerning the will of God so we can pray according to the will of God is not like reading a choose-your-own-adventure novel. Many of us tend to think, and, and by thinking then tend to live and, and act as if discerning God's will is kind of like those books. You get to a place where now you've got to decide in particular decisions which one is actually according to God's clearest, most specific will. What does God want me to do in this particular situation? Do I take this job or that job? Do I leave this job for this job? Do I buy this house or this house? Do my kids go to this school or this school? Do I eat this cake or this cake? Or whatever the decision is. And, and there are so many decisions that we have to make in life. And so many carry very significant consequences. We don't make a series of insignificant decisions. We make a series of very significant decisions on a day-in and day-out basis in life, and I think a great many of us want to make decisions that are in accord with, with God's will. But here's the thing. I think so many of us, if we wouldn't say it honestly, we would actually say it implicitly in the way that we actually live. We're deathly afraid that if we make the wrong choice or the wrong decision, not only might our lives blow up in our face, not only might our lives kind of explode right then and there, but we'll be out of the perfect will of God. All of a sudden, we'll be out of the perfect will of God and, and in some type of spiritual wilderness or desolation. We'll miss God's best and end up with an alternate ending to our life, kind of like those choose-your-own-adventure books. We should have picked sneaking out of the country by night and not the tunnel. And because we picked the tunnel, we're out of God's will. We're left to desolation to make the best of whatever's there for the rest of the days that God's given us. The will of God, that phrase, is one of the most frequently used and abused statements in, in Christianese. Are you familiar with Christianese? Pastor Ray introduced us to Christianese a few months ago. It's one of the most used and abused statements in, in common evangelical Christian language. And at many times, it's, it's one of the most confusing statements. And one of the reasons why it's so confusing is that we use it in a few different ways. We use it in, in three particular ways. Two of them are good, and I would dare say biblical. And the third just creates a crowd. It just kind of gets in the way from our understanding exactly what is meant by the will of God. Um, and let me help you. I told you I want to be clear and I want to be practical, right? This book, it's called Just Do Something, written by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. It goes into a much greater and more full treatment of what I'm about to talk about than I'm going to have time this morning to actually do. So if this is of interest to you, what I'm about to say, grab this book. It's not big. It won't take you a long time. And to help you in my effort of being clear and very practical with this to you, I'm actually going to use some of the headings that he uses in this book so that when you go back to it and read it, it will make sense. But here's what Mr. DeYoung has to say and how he categorizes the way that we often understand what is meant by the term God's will. Two ways are biblical. One way just gets in the way. 
And it tends to be the one that gets in the way that we tend to major on when it comes to trying to understand this. Here's the first thing. First thing meant by trying to understand what is God's will, especially as we understand it in the Bible. God always gets his way. If you want to write things down, you can write this one down. God always gets his way. Theologically, we call this God's will of decree. God's will of decree. God's will of declaration. On the street, we just say that God always gets his way. All that God decrees, this is what this means, all that God decrees and all that God declares will come to pass. It cannot be overcome. It's very simple for you. All that God decrees, all that God declares will in fact come to pass. It cannot be overcome. God is sovereign over all things, all things, and whatever God wills will indeed happen. This is what God's will of decree means. God always gets his way. Let me just show you this in the Bible in a few different places. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 11 and 12, just listen to what the Apostle Paul says. I just want to show you a few things this morning. In him, Paul said, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, what? All things, according to the counsel of what? His will. God's will of decree. God always gets his way. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God works all things, not just Big things, but all things according to his will. His good and very sovereign purposes for all that he has created. For his glory and ultimately our joy. Now look at Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. I'm going to show you this in a couple places. Great. Big things, all things. Look at this. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What was he talking about there? He's talking about the cross. Talking about one of the most, if not, maybe let me just say, the most heinous act of injustice ever committed on this earth took place according to God's good and perfect will. Whatever his hand and his plan had purposed, he always gets his way. Look at Isaiah, chapter 46. I think this is going to come up. Did I get it up there? Well done. God's will of decree has been in existence before anything that he ever created came into being. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. God always gets his way. One of my favorite outside extra biblical resources that says this, the Heidelberg Catechism. One of the greatest pastoral teaching tools ever written for the church. It says this, question 27 and answer 27. It says this, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power by which he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures as with his hands and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God's will of decree. God always gets his way. There's a second way we need to understand God's will as we see it in Scripture. There's God's will of decree, but then there's also what's called God's will of desire. And Kevin DeYoung, if you go read his book, said it this way. Not only does God always get his way, but God always points out the way. God is very clear to us in his word. God is very clear for what he desires from his people. He commands things and desires things from us. This is called his will of desire. God's decree, what he has determined from eternity past and cannot be overcome and 
his will of desire, how he wants us to live. And we can't disregard it. We can't ignore his will of decree and we can't disregard God's will of desire, how he points out the way for his people. Let me just show you this real quick in the Bible. First one you saw last week when I briefly mentioned this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. And just so you know, there are so many places we could go to in the Bible for this. I'm just going to try to pull out a few. And I encourage you to go and look for more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is what Paul said. For this is the will of God. Remember how clear this was last week? For this is the will of God. If you're curious, your sanctification, your obedience, your conformity into the image of Christ, your spiritual maturity, your increased delight in the person and work of Christ, your increased treasuring of the riches of the gospel, of the grace that God has shown you through his son. This is his will for you, your sanctification. Paul didn't make this up. Remember I told you one of the greatest prayers in the Bible that Jesus prayed for us, for the church, was in John chapter 17, his great high priestly prayer. Listen to what Jesus prayed. John's just being biblical. He's just being Jesus-centered here. Listen to how Jesus prayed for you. John chapter 17, verse 14 through 19. He's praying to the Father. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sounds like what John has said in 1 John, doesn't it? You remember that? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, here's what he prays for you. Here's Jesus' prayer to the Father for you. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What is his prayer for you? Your sanctification. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Why? Why did Jesus do what he did? That they may also, you, would be sanctified in the truth. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you be sanctified in the truth of God. That's why John and, and Paul and Peter can go on to say the things that they say to the church in their letters, like we saw 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. You'll remember this. John said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We don't have to ask him what that is, do we? We don't have to go, why are you so vague there, John? What is the will of God and what John was saying? It means saying no and resisting the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the prideful sins that we have in our possessions. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. What did the capacity to overcome the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of possessions come from? John told us, we looked at it a few weeks ago, it, come, it came from being born again. It came from having our eyes open to the truth and the beauty and the glory of God in the face of Christ and the spirit of God making residence in our soul, giving us new desires and new delights so we would have confidence in who we are because of what he has done. And the hope of eternal life would take root in us now. And we would, as John said, be overcomers. Because of Christ, we have overcome the world because we have the grace of God and the hope of Christ and the power of the Spirit in us. And his will for us is that we would be sanctified and continue to grow in the image and likeness of Christ, we resisting the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's pretty simple, right? I'll show you another one. 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul already said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Jesus had already prayed previous to Paul saying that, that here's what I'm going to pray for you, your sanctification. John unpacks what that looks like in particular for how we deal with the world. And Paul says later in this letter, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, not just in good times. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in what circumstances? all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. God's will of desire for his people is all over the Bible. I mean, these are just a few instances of God's will of desire for his people. God not only gets his way, 
he also points out the way to his people. The Bible clearly shows us God's will of decree, and it shows us all over the place God's will of desire. Those are the two sides of the coin of God's will that we see most clearly in the Bible. But the third way that we tend to talk about it is what tends to make it so confusing. And it's the one we tend to major on. And this is often called God's will of direction. I mean, this is the drain that we always circle around in our life in particular. Where do we live? What do we do? Where do we go? How how do I spend my money? Do I buy this? Do I not? God's will of direction is this desire that we have for God's specific individual plan for our life in any particular circumstance. Does God have a specific plan for our life that we're supposed to figure out kind of like that Choose Your Own Adventure book. Is there a specific path and a specific plan for our life that we're supposed to figure out before we can make decisions so that we don't make the wrong decision and find ourselves out of God's will for our life, left in this spiritual desolation now to toil on our own because God's perfect will was page 26. And we chose page 37. And we didn't read ahead and he didn't tell us which one to do. Kevin DeYoung, I want to encourage you to get the book. He quotes an author named Gerald's sister in his book, The Will of God as a Way of Life. And this is what sister says about this. That's kind of funny. I didn't think about that. This is what sister says. Sorry. You hear yourself say things sometimes when you're up in front of people. That sounds kind of funny. This is what he says. Conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and he's laid it out for us to follow, and our responsibility is to discover the pathway, God's plan for our life. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the one we should follow, the one God has planned for us. If and when we make the right choice, we will receive his favor, fulfill our divine destiny, and succeed in life. Does this sound like anything you've ever been taught or thought before? If we choose rightly... We will experience his blessing and achieve success and happiness. If we choose wrongly, we may lose our way. We may miss God's will for our life and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. Is that foreign to you? This is the standard operating procedure for the evangelical church. This is the standard operating procedure for trying to understand what is meant by God's will, and it's totally off base. It's a surefire way to frustration and and disappointment and ultimately, I don't have to tell you, discouragement. We trust in God's will of decree as he's revealed it in his scripture and it's grounded in his character. We desire to obey his will of desire. We seek to obey his will of desire as he has revealed it in scripture. That's just obedience. But waiting around for God's will of direction so that you can make a decision and not end up in spiritual desolation out of his perfect will is dangerous for your spiritual health and your spiritual maturity. Gerald's sister would go on to say after that paragraph that this understanding of God's will, his will of direction that so captivates Christians today allows too many followers of Christ to be passive tinkerers who strangely feel more spiritual the less they actually do. You get that? The less you actually do, the fewer decisions you actually make sitting around talking about waiting for this specific personal plan for the home you're supposed to live in makes you feel more spiritual. But you're just a tinkerer. You're just a tinkerer. God has given us. Start here. He is a good God. He has given us brains. And he unveils for us the path of obedience He unveils for us his character and his desire, his will of decree for his glory, his will of desire for us to obey. He calls us to know him, to be transformed by him, to be conformed into his image such that we'll desire what he desires, want what he wants. He gives us directions for how to live and how to obey, and he says, go live. Go live. 
Go, go make decisions. Take risks in your decisions for his glory and your joy. He's directed the steps. He's directed obedience. Now live. So many of us get caught circling this drain, thinking that there's this great blueprint that's going to fall out of the sky. It's going to lay it all out, and we won't pick the wrong page. He's told us the beginning of the story. He's told us the end of the story. He's given us himself right smack in the middle of the story that we're in. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us his desire. And he says, go live. Go live. We get so caught up in the trees that we miss the forest. We trust in his will of decree. We seek to be obedient to his will of desire. And we live knowing that he has promised to work out all things according to his good purposes for his glory and our joy. Yes, he has a plan for your life. Yes, he works all things out for his glory and your good. Yes, you can look back and on your life and see his hand guiding and shaping and moving and stopping and starting and, and doing things, the hand of his providence at work in your life as you look back. But you do not need to know all of the details of the plan before you actually make decisions. You don't need to know the details of the plan before you do anything. Rather, as his word has taught us, you seek first the kingdom of God. He'll take care of all of your needs even before you know what they are and before you actually know where you're headed. This is what he has said. But in this text, remember, clarify, I'm going to try to get practical too. In this text, John is talking about the will of God, this big thing, in particular as it relates primarily to prayer. So let's get practical for the last 10 to 12 minutes that we have this morning. We can pray according to God's will because we know from the scriptures what God wants. He has declared to us what he wants He's declared for us his desires for his glory and for our joy, for our transformation into the image and likeness of his son. We know from his word that he is working in us to cultivate our souls, to want what he wants. So we know that we can now pray according to his will. So how do we pray? What do we actually pray for so that we can fall in line with that? Let me give you a few Ideas, a few directional points, and then we're going to do it together. Does that make sense? Is that good? Here's what you can pray for. You got a decision you need to make? God doesn't tell you whether or not to move into that neighborhood or this neighborhood? Quit this job and take that one? It's not there in the Bible? The internet wasn't there? The job market didn't even exist? What do you pray? One, you pray for illumination. God has been clear that he wants us to understand his word and apply his word to our lives. So we pray that by his Holy Spirit, he will illuminate the truth of his word to our hearts so we can see it clearly and we can make application to our life. And as we pray for illumination from his word, we pray for wisdom. He wants us in every decision we make to make good decisions. Good decisions that reflect a trust in him and a desire for his glory. An awareness of our, of our need and our, our role to reflect his character to a watching world. He wants us to grow into the image of his son and be more like him. And he wants us to make wise decisions. We pray for wisdom. James says you have not because you ask not. Ask him for wisdom. He will answer that prayer. And as you pray for illumination and you pray for wisdom, you begin then to pray from what you actually know God desires as he's revealed it in his word. You pray that as you make decisions in your life, you have good motives. You make them out of faith, that you're obedient, that humility marks you as you're making whatever decision it is, that you have courage to make whatever decision it is you actually have to make. You think about what God's word has revealed about what it means to seek first his kingdom. You think about what the decision means for you and the way that you relate to God's people. What role does God's people and your responsibility to love one another and serve one another mean for the decision you're about to make? You think about the job you're thinking about taking and the hours that it's asking of you. What impact does that have on what God has revealed to you that is your responsibility to love one another, 
to serve your family. You, you know what he said and what he's revealed. So what impact does that have on the decision? You pray for illumination. You pray for wisdom. And then you take what you know to be revealed about his decree and his desire, and you begin to pray. This is what it means to petition God for things, for answers. And then you make a decision. Because as we live day in and day out, as John has said, in the light, we desire for humility and wisdom and courage and God's kingdom to be marked by our life and in what we do. You can trust that as you seek that, you'll be making good decisions. And then you make a decision and you go. You make a decision and then you go. You live. But then John also said, we don't just petition God for things. And here's where we'll, we'll pray together for a little bit. we got, I think, six minutes. He also talked briefly about prayer in the form of intercession. One of the privileges that we have as followers of Christ is to pray for one another. To have the same confidence to go before God, to, to talk to God. Confident knowing that he loves for us to come to him. That we can speak freely to him. That he desires to not only listen, but that he does listen. And that he answers. And then he says we can do that for one another. We have a, the privilege to do that for one another. We saw how Jesus did it for us in his high priestly prayer. And so we have the privilege to do that. So how do we pray for one another now according to God's will? We have an entire Bible that directs us to God's will of desire for his glory and for his people. Have you ever felt when you've been wanting to pray for someone, someone in your community or, or maybe your kids or maybe a friend or maybe a spouse or this overwhelming desire to pray for them and as you've gotten get ready to pray, you just feel anemic. Like, where do I pray? Uh, the same words just keep rolling out all the time. There's, there's nothing stirring and you, you want to pray but... You just feel empty. You feel anemic and you listen to yourself pray and it sounds kind of shallow and kind of repetitive and, and that's a whole other sermon and I, I, don't, I don't want to knock on that but you never actually have to feel anemic again. You, you never actually have to feel shallow and uninformed when you pray for one another ever again because God has given you his word and you can have confidence that you can pray according to his will for one another as you pray what he has revealed in his word. And you'll never have to feel anemic about it again. John says you live with one another and serve one another and you recognize one of your brothers and sisters in Christ is in sin. There's sin that's marking someone in here that you relate to and you know they love Jesus. But there's this sin that is consuming them and he says the first instinct of a follower of Christ is not to go tell someone else about it, but it's to pray. It's to go to God and pray. And you go to God and say, I don't quite know what to say. They're, they're doing what they shouldn't do. Make them stop, and you just don't know what to say. I'll give you an example. Open up to Psalm 1. Let me show you how you can pray for one another. By using God's revealed will, his will of desire for his people. You want to pray for one another? God has given you an entire Bible worth of prayers. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Your brother and sister in Christ is in sin. They're in sin, and you, you, you know them, and they're not even seeing it. They're not even aware of it. Your child, moms and dads, how desperately you want for your child to know Christ, to not deal with the things that you've dealt with in your life. You know what that feeling is. How about you take Psalm 1 and begin to pray for that person by name and go to God and say they are walking in the counsel of the wicked. God, you, they are believing lies about you and, and about joy and about what is most satisfying. 
God, your, your word is no longer sweet to them. It's not truth to them. God, they're hearing lies whispered in their ears and in their soul, and they're believing them. His will, his will is that they know his voice, that they know his word, that his word helps them discern truth from error. You know that, so pray that for them. You ever wonder what to pray? Pray that his word, his truth, becomes sweet to them again. That they're able to discern the truth from the air, the, the lie from the truth. That what they're believing would be seen for what it is. Pray that for them. Maybe they're standing, as the psalmist says, in the way of sinners. Maybe they're immersed in something, in a, in a group, in, in a people, in, in a culture, or, or in an experience that is rubbed off on them in such a way that they can no longer see the lie about what it is they're doing. Maybe they went into it with a missionary motive. Don't we do that all the time now? I'm going to go do this with this missionary motive that I can go and do all of these things over here in such an effort to actually reach these people with Christ. But if we could really discern the motive of the heart, it's to go and be a part of what's going on over here. And maybe somebody's been a part of something. Maybe with a partially right intention in the beginning, but now they're immersed in it. They're walking in the way of those who will perish. They're not only standing, but they're seated with comfort in the midst of it. Pray. Pray for them. That's not God's will for his people. Pray that God's word would become a delight again. It would be all-consuming. What, what marks the things that you delight in? They become all-consuming to you. They become things you treasure and things you hold on to and things you pursue with everything. Pray that his word would become a delight to them again. That, that they would be illuminated to the truth of the word. That the spirit would work in the word and in their heart again to see Jesus in the word again. That it would be trustworthy to them again. That it would help them discern the, the lie that they're living in. What, whatever it is, your heart begins to say, let the, Bible, let the Bible guide you. It is his revealed will for his people. You never have to feel anemic again when you pray. You can take up any part of the Bible and begin to do this as you pray for one another. Pray, pray for maturity. This is where the psalmist goes. A tree planted by streams of water. Fruitful. Yielding fruit in season. Never withering. When the heat of the sun comes, it doesn't wither because the roots are deep. Pray for maturity. Pray for fruitfulness. Pray for a rootedness and a confidence in the gospel. Pray that, pray that God would show them the, the danger of what it is that they're involved in and the sin that is marking them, the danger of the lies. It may seem pleasant to them now, but in the end, the wicked are like chaff, the psalmist says. It may seem pleasant for a moment, but in the end, what rests is destruction. Pray that God would open up their eyes to the urgency of eternity and the reality of eternal life. Pray that the Holy Spirit would awaken their souls. God's given you his revealed will of desire for his people. He's given you everything you need to pray according to his will. This is how he calls us to pray for one another. Let me show you one other example. Can I show you one other example? Are you, you're melting, aren't you? I'm melting up here. Let me show you one other example just to show you and encourage you. I told you practical, right? This book by D.A. Carson, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. He took all the prayers the Apostle Paul prayed in his letters and he unpacks them prayer by prayer. And it becomes a guide for how you can begin to pray not only for yourself but pray for others. I encourage you to get it. Communities get it. Read through it in the summer together. P pray these prayers that Paul prayed for the church for each other when you gather together in community. It, it, it would be no greater encouragement to your prayer than to see how the Bible prays. And how it directs you to pray according to God's will. Just listen to what one of Paul's prayers, the shortest. I'll give you the shortest. I wish we could walk through them all. Here's the shortest, and here's how we'll close. Paul's prayer to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 11. This is what he says. Here's my prayer for you. So here's how you can pray for the church. Here's how you can pray for your family. Here's how you can pray for your kids. Here's how you can pray for Redemption Hill and, and everybody who's a part of it. Here's my prayer. That your love may abound more and more. That, that our love may abound more and more. That may be a place marked by a deep and abiding love that reflects the love that we have experienced from Christ. Pray that our love, our love abound more and more with knowledge 
and all discernment. That, that knowledge and understanding of the gospel and understanding of God's word and understanding of who God is and who we are and what that means, that, that knowledge would abound more and more with love and it would produce discernment. Discernment, why? So that we may approve what is excellent. So that we can make decisions that honor Christ, that reflect Christ, that reflect a growing maturity in Christ, our sanctification. That we would make excellent decisions and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pray that we be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Oh, that righteousness would mark us. That there would be a delight, not only in the riches of the gospel, but a trust in that gospel that would bear the fruit of righteousness in our life and we would be marked by it in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with this city, in our relationships with the places where God would send you. That righteousness and holiness would mark us. And listen to what he says. What a gospel-centered, now grace-driven prayer. This righteousness comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It has nothing to do with your effort. Pray that we would treasure the grace of God that has been shown to us in Christ. That grace would drive us in this righteousness. That grace would drive us in this treasuring of the gospel. This is the way Paul prays for the church. This is the way you can pray for the church. This is God's revealed will of desire for his people. So you can pray. You can pray with confidence, knowing that God wants you to come to him freely, knowing that he wants to listen and that he does listen, and knowing that he answers prayer. And you can never pray more confidently than when you pray according to his will. And he has given us the Bible so that you can do that. I don't know that I can be more practical for you this morning. So let me just pray for us and then we'll, we'll close. I will, I will just pray the way Paul prayed in Ephesians. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, all according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far and above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I pray for you that God would do according to his will that he has revealed here in this prayer, that you may know and grow in the knowledge of him and have the eyes of your hearts enlightened to know what is the hope to which he has called you, the riches of the inheritance that is yours because of Christ. We ask these things in... In Jesus' name, amen.